This is podcast number 189, entitled, Why Weepest Thou? And we've just heard Gilbert O'Sullivan's 1972 hit, entitled, Alone Again, Naturally. And the subject of the cast is weeping and tears, and what actually engenders tears. I have some high hopes for this cast. The last three casts I've done, I've enjoyed doing, and they were kind of a way to get back into... 
a kind of um, richer context or place uh, or deeper place um, after a very long hiatus that had occurred after a cast concerning um, meditation and uh, how to throw a wild crucifix. Uh, and um, they sort of were working up to what I hope this will be today. What's happened is that I've been approached twice, completely out of the blue, on the streets of a major American city very recently by people whom I did not know, but who apparently knew who I was, who were listening to um, uh, the cast, especially the one I just mentioned, four back, uh, who had been um, very strongly affected by it. And as I thought about their comments, I decided in light of something that happened to me quite recently, to try to go a little deeper today. This is a little bit more emotional. This is a little bit more hopefully resonant with where you really are and where all of us actually live in a sort of um, archaeological way. And it's the question of what really brings tears to your eyes, to your heart, to your face, and what is really going on with um, eruptions of emotion. What is happening there? And how can we understand it and perhaps, in a sense, use it, use tears to understand ourselves and possibly even to kind of assimilate uh, negative experiences and losses to a place of renewed healing? I'm talking about you. And um, this is where it came from. I was with a friend of mine whom I know and love and very much respect who had recently returned from his the 50th anniversary uh, reunion of his Princeton class. And during this reunion, which was of uh, many people went to it, and it turned out to be a great success, and certainly in his experience, uh, one of the high points, if not the high point for the whole reunion, was when the entire class, now much older, um, trooped into the chapel at um, Princeton, and the necrology was read. Now, the necrology is the name of the, say, 115 or so members of a class which once numbered, say, 750 or something like that. The 100 and plus uh, members of the class who have died. And although a few persons spoke uh, very personally and warmly and had been asked to speak, the uh, great um, power came when all the names were read uh, in sequence and alphabetical. Actually, I think in sequence of when they had died. But what really brought tears to my friend's eyes? And he said to almost everyone who was in attendance was when the old Nassau hymn was sung, when all the members of that Princeton class sang uh, the hymn, the college hymn that they so closely connected with their years and times at Princeton. And I totally identified with it uh, for reasons I what will sound pretentious to go into, but I've had that experience in other situations. And it's the music, as often happens in church hymns, when people are in sorrow and suffering and they go to church for the first time in a long time, and it's the hymns that connote. But why do they cry during the hymns? Because the hymns they remember from their childhood. My childhood. And the hymn that my friend welled up in relation to was the hymn that connoted these golden, magical, idyllic adolescent years. Of course, they weren't golden. They were golden, but they weren't necessarily idyllic. Uh, no one has idyllic college years, but they are his youth. And the youth that we, you and I, had in college or in high school or prep school or whatever you want to call it, our adolescence, is in fact golden. It never comes back. And we are very attached to our lives then. And everything has enormous, tumultuous, ecstatic, and also down in the dumps possibility, pregnant within it, of feeling great rushes. And so when we hear music that brings back that experience, it's really bringing back the lost 
precious character of our youth because that's the part that we will never recover again. And when we were in the most um, felt way, especially looking back on it now, we were alive. We were alive and alive in the most vital, virile, and felt and emotional sense you can possibly get. Let me give you some more examples. Um, Think of the songs that you like. I mean, even if you're 35 years old and listening to this, or 25 years old, you, 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 although probably at about 35 you begin to switch, and you can certainly like wonderful music up to you're about 40, but after that it begins to sort of all become relatively unimportant to you. And what you find yourself doing is you return instinctively and compunctively to music that you loved when you were going through adolescence, especially either romantic highs and romantic ecstasies or romantic depressions and bereftness and desolation of the first order. This is where you go. I say this from experience, but I say this from the experience of my friend I'm speaking about. And I say this from um, every uh, Burton Cummings concert I've gone to, and I've been to four recently. And there's not a single person in the entire congregation who is under the age of 55. Not one. There are some children and grandchildren who have been brought along by people my age who um, will like the music and we want to introduce a child to She's Come Undone or um, Glamour Boy or whatever it is, uh, no time, but the the engine of the event is the fact that the songs of Burton Cummings, especially of the Guess Who, um, were the soundtrack of our young lives. And we remember where we were, what car we were driving, to where we were going, whom we were with. These are the things that... um, are connoted. And so when we go to the music we like, we're really going to ourselves. Now, I'm going to repeat that. When we go to the music that we like, we are going to ourselves. It's a pilgrimage to ourselves. Someone I love very much, but who's about 10 years older than I, identifies much more with certain television shows and certain movies that predate me by about 10 years. So he's always about 10 years earlier than I am, but that's where his heart is because he was he was 20 when a certain set of... Uh, Uh, impressions were coming along and I was 20 when another set of impressions were coming along and that's where I'm stuck I'm not really stuck I'm I'm not stuck with the music I'm stuck with myself I'm 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 remembering myself I'm getting in touch with myself I'm in the heart of myself so when I say um, that uh, I am absolutely devoted to Oh, let's say a song like Simon and Garfunkel's The Boxer. Now, that song from the spring of 69 has enormously freighted, ecstatic and important and very, 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 very deeply felt memories for me. Now, Simon and Garfunkel did many albums. They did several albums before The Boxer and Bridge Over Troubled Waters, and they did albums afterwards. And then, of course, Paul Simon had a very rich and rewarding and productive solo career. I loved all his music, but what gets to me, what gets, what arrests me when I hear it, if I'm on a, in a, some place where it's being played, it arrests me is when I hear The Boxer because I'm arrested by myself. I'm remembering myself. I'm in touch with myself. I'm in touch with often the very best of myself, whether it's a high or low. I'm in touch with that which feeling. Ask yourself. I mean, what's the music, especially if you're a little bit over the age of the immediate impression of college? What is the music most gets to you? I mean, as I said, it's 
people who go to do you think they go into um church and uh hear oh god our help and ages past uh, and uh, weep because uh they're touched by isaac watts's meter and the great um message of the psalm uh, which is uh put into uh, simple protestant english by isaac watts the genius no they heard it when they were young they connect it with their mother or their father or their early life. It is really an act of loss. It is an act of mourning. How many times have people come out of church and said, I don't know what happened. I went in there just to sort of see if there was anything. I sat in the back and suddenly I was overwhelmed with sobbing because you're mourning yourself. The, the boxer, I mourned myself. I, I listened to, you know, it's so, it's so strange. I, I listened to the song Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group. Now, it's a song from the spring of 73, and it's a good song. And it was, you know, Edgar Winter was a wild man, but I never saw Edgar Winter perform, but the song I associate with Mary. I associate driving in her very cool car because Mary's a very cool person. She's what we, we used to call swift, a very swift, cool, competent driver, of, uh, water skier. Everything she does, she does well, at least practically. I think everything she does well. But I remember driving in her car. I didn't have a car um, along um, Memorial Drive, Starro Drive, sorry, Starro Drive in uh, Cambridge and uh, listening to Frankenstein and thoroughly and totally swept off my feet by love for the woman to whom I've been married for 42 years now. I wasn't then, but swept off my seat. So I listened to Frankenstein by Edgar Wintergroup and I just die. Well, you can imagine Mary says, what the, you know, I mean, Jethro Tull maybe or Steely Dan, but Edgar Winter. But that's because I listened. I heard it when I was most impressionable. And you're the same way. Now the tears, don't cry for me, Argentina. You're crying for yourself. You're crying for the loss of yourself, and it's a great insight. It's a great, wise insight. This is whom you're missing, and this is the person you want to contact with. And it's really important because the, the person that is there in those songs, the person that was you when you were listening, something very important was going on, something really, really crucial. And if you think that what you did in your 40s is anywhere near as uh, important as what you were thinking and feeling as you were racing along in a, in a Camaro on Starro Drive or your equivalent, because you've all got an equivalent of it, then uh, if you think anything you've done since you were 40 has remotely the connection with that, I mean, yes, I listened to a lot of MTV uh, uh, new music, as it was called, in the 80s, and I adore it and I love it. And it makes me think of my children, which is the real reason it touches me. It makes me think of my children, uh, uh, U2 and Van Halen. Jump! <laughs> Jump! Dun, dun, dun. I mean, I just adore it. But the fact is, it's the emotions that were going into me and through me and on me at the time that I'm affected by, not the actual music. I am, in a sense, asking you to subjectivize your memories. And in that way, you'll be able to appreciate them and know what they are. You'll, you'll be able to cry, Argentina, but for yourself. And also, you'll able to be able to abreact and, and assimilate the, the losses, which are very powerful, because that, that is not a loss. That experience you had listening to whatever it was in the 80s, 90s, 70s, 60s, or 50s will always be with you. It's part of you. And that part to be to be mourned is to assimilate it. And that's why this is an important podcast to me. And I hope you've uh, gotten something out of it. I do want to continue this thinking as I talk about assimilation and accepting, especially of loss and the powerful positive impact 
of that on the human uh, engine uh, person to find peace, especially in mature years. Uh, but I leave that with you, and now we have a kind of concluding upbeat form of uh, this theme by a group that I will not need to identify that uh, that turns this whole cast uh, from uh, a chronicle of Orson Welles like loss to a chronicle that is known in Neville Shute terms as an optimistic tragedy. Thanks so much and God bless. <laughs>